go. Okay, we are in Nehemiah, and we're starting chapter 6 today. So let's go ahead and uh, open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the history of your people, uh, especially of Nehemiah as he led the, the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. We thank you for this record of how he trusted in you and how he exhibited uh, good leadership qualities. And uh, let's pray that as we study this morning, we can see some of those and we can see how he trusted you and uh, you gave him success in the face of his enemies. We pray you'll open our hearts to understand how we can apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so our reading this morning, we'll start in chapter 6. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. 1 through 9 in Nehemiah 6. Now in Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built a wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors of the gate. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain in Ona. Oh, maybe I finished that. Stop there. But they were steaming to harm me. That's a crucial point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. In the same way, send out to that matter. Verse 6, yes. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashem says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are getting the king according to these reports. And have an appointed prophets to make a proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judea. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the word and it will not be done. But now that God strengthened my hands. Okay. Oh, that's hard enough. I'll save you from that. Um, yeah, last week, uh, when we finished up chapter 5, Nehemiah was recounting. Um, his service as governor, and he was basically acted as a benevolent dictator. You know, he was appointed governor. wasn't This was not a democracy or a republic or anything, but he was benevolent. He cared about the people. He treated them fairly. Um, when when people were in need, he would loan them food, loan them money uh, as necessary without requiring them to sign over their property or anything like that. Um, he fed at least 150 people at his table, and he never never asked for the governor's food allowance. He could have asked for that, but he fed them out of his own resources. Um, and in the end, he asked God to remember him for his obedience and his service, which really gets down to the point of 
rewards. He's asking God to bless him, which is a, a reward. And that got me thinking about, you know, what are our different motivations for serving God? You know, there's, there's different ones listed in Scripture. One is, you know, Christ says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, we can serve God out of love and gratefulness for what he's done for us. Um, it also says, you know, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. So we serve God for his glory. Um, we also can serve for rewards. And one of the things I think we have to be a little bit careful about in our own thinking is that a tendency to make some motivations maybe uh, more noble than others. I might say, well, I serve God because of my gratefulness, my love for him, where you're just looking at rewards. You know, that's not as noble a sentiment as I have. And we get this false piety or piety uh, because we, have, we think we have more noble reasons for serving God. So I wanted to look at rewards before we go on to chapter 6. They are a legitimate motivation for serving God. Um, we know uh, Paul was expecting a crown of righteousness. We, I think we saw that last week when we looked at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll go through the New Testament and look at some of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And someone like to read verse 14 for us. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, this is the, uh, um, I think we call this the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, that's different, that's, <laughs> that's one you don't want to be at, um, but he talks about, you know, if, if your work is good, you'll receive a reward. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, would someone like to read verse 5? Okay, here's praise from God. Is there anybody who does not want to stand before Christ and have him say, well done? I th- to me, that might be the ultimate reward. Now, Christ look at you and say, well done. You know, and I think that's very appropriate uh, motivation. Uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I think there's passages that in the parables where it talks about if you're a good servant in the kingdom to come, you'll be given the opportunity to manage a huge city or something like that. I'm thinking, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> I manage projects. That's bad enough. I don't want to manage the city. Uh, okay, Ephesians 6, with some electric verses 5 and 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ and the will of God from the heart. Okay. He's talking to slaves about, you know, serve Christ rather than your masters. And looking at the parallel passage, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. 
we have something similar. Uh, verses uh, 22 and, 20, excuse me, Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Someone like to read those for us. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, serving the Lord Christ. Okay, so this is parallel passage, and here it clearly uses the word reward. You will receive a reward, the inheritance of a reward. Um, let's go on to Hebrews chapter 11. There's a passage that talks about Moses and his, some of his motivation. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, and with someone like to read verses 24 through 26. Okay, here's Moses looking for the reward. Again, uh, looking looking for that reward. That, that was part of his motivation. And finally, Revelation chapter tw- 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Would someone read that for us? Okay, so there's a reward. Now, in this case, it may be um, your reward might be judgment if you have been evil. But on the other hand, if you've been obedient and served Christ, the reward is blessings. And so Nehemiah, uh, as he writes his memoirs, again, we're we're looking at someone who's older, probably looking ahead to his death. And he's saying, God, remember me. And I think he's asking God to bless him, to reward him for his service and, and, and for doing the right things in office. Okay, so that, that sums up what we were looking at in chapter 5. So this morning we're, we're getting into chapter 6. And now we get back to building the wall. Chapter 4, we talked all about building a wall. Then chapter 5, all of a sudden we had this social economic turmoil going on with people in poverty and being abused um, by their creditors and Nehemiah had to hash all that out and and so it was kind of like a parenthesis here Um, but chapter 6 we're back to building the wall so looking at verse 1 now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Gresham the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. So here we have the list of his enemies. It clearly says enemies, not just people who oppose him, but actual enemies. Uh, we have Tobiah. Again, he's um, the, the ruler or leader in Samaria, which is to their north. We have Tobiah. Excuse me, Sanballat is the leader to the north in some area. Tobiah was the Ammonite. He was to their east, across the 
the Jordan River to their east. Geshem the Arab, he was to their south. And then they had other enemies. And we've mentioned before Ashdod, which is on the Mediterranean coast. So that was to their west. So they were surrounded by enemies. And so this is the list again. But they hear uh, about his progress, that they've got uh, the wall rebuilt. Let's go back to chapter 4. Someone likely verses 7 and 8 for us. This is the last time we see them getting a report on progress. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion there. Okay, so here... So there were still breaches in the wall, but the work was going on, and the reaction was anger. They were very, very angry about this. And so if you remember, the plot was to send in um, people amongst the workers who would then kill the workers. It was almost like a terrorist attack. And uh, Nehemiah found out about that and set up the defense system that we studied about in, in Chapter 4. So that attack was thwarted. So now they're getting together to hatch another plot to see if they can stop the work. Um, but they've already know they can't attack the workers. Uh, so now they're going to attack the leader. They're going to attack Nehemiah directly. And we'll see this first of several plots here in verses 2 through 4. Um, now, before we get on to verse 2, the breaches in the wall had been closed. So the wall is complete, but no gates have been built. There are no doors in the gates. Um, so what this allowed them to do, they probably reduced their workforce because you didn't have, it was like two and a half miles of wall. You, you only had localized gates. So they were able to reduce their workforce and the people going back to their regular jobs and as far as uh, defense, they could keep their guards just in the gates. They wouldn't need to guard the entire perimeter. They could um, focus their guards and their, on the gates as far as protecting the people inside. So that's their status. <clears throat> okay, going on to verses 2 through 4. That Sanballat and Gershom sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chephirim in the plain of Ono, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, <clears throat> and I answered them the same, answered them in the same way. <clears throat> so we see <clears throat> Sanballat and Geshem taking the lead in this particular plot. So they invited Nehemiah to come and meet them for a conference in the plain of Ono. <clears throat> and so the commentaries say this was about 20 to 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So it would have been kind of in the corner where the province of Judea and Samaria and Ashdod all meet together. So this is kind of a no man's land, kind of like neutral territory. 
So that kind of makes sense as a place to get together and do a negotiation. Um, and it appears that what they wanted to do was work out some sort of a treaty arrangement. You know, they're, they're, they're telling the MI, okay, you now have a fortified city. Uh, you know, we want to work out maybe a non-aggression treaty. We've been reading about those lately. Uh, that they won't attack each other or something. So that appeared to be what they wanted to do. Um, but Nehemiah smelled a rat here, or, or either that or he had really good intelligence that they were planning to harm him. Again, let's, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Someone like read verse 12 for us. Okay, so the enemies were planning secretly to attack them. We, we saw this term ten times means over and over again, multiple times. So lots of, lots of Jews reported to Nehemiah, they're coming to attack you. This is what's going on. So um, they both had good intelligence on what the other party was doing. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem, and we'll see later, they were either related or in cahoots with, these, with the enemies, and so they told them exactly how the construction project was coming on. And then there were others who uh, supported Nehemiah, and, and they would tell Nehemiah, well, here's what your enemies are doing. So there wasn't a lot of secrecy here. <clears throat> so Nehemiah may have, may have been warned about this, that they wanted to um, harm Nehemiah. Uh, it doesn't tell us specifically what this means, whether he'd be kidnapped or murdered but the goal was to remove the leadership. To remove the leadership, and then the work would stop. And we see that uh, Nehemiah's response essentially was, I'm too busy to meet with you. Um, now he, yeah, he says, he kind of dresses it up a little bit, saying, it's really, really important that I stay here and do this work, you know, which makes it sound nicer, but... In essence, he was giving him a pretty blunt no. Um, but he's rather diplomatic about it, I think, here. You know, he's not just saying nuts. <laughs> I think that was a, what was that in World War II? A Battle of the Bulge. Battle of the Bulge, yeah, one of the Allied commanders was asked to surrender, and he, that was his response, nuts. <laughs> he's not going to, no, this is, this is a little more diplomatic. Um, so Nehemiah asked this rhetorical question here. He says, Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? This is rather, I think there's a lot of hidden sarcasm here. He's telling them that he understands this is exactly why they want to meet, so that he'll leave and the work will stop. <coughs> but he's doing it in kind of a diplomatic speak. I know what you're up to. I know why you want me to come. And the answer is absolutely not. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so they were getting kind of desperate by this time because they knew if they got the gates hung, they'd be uh, fairly strong defenses. So it says they sent the request 
It'd be three more times. Total four times they came with the same request over and over again. And it kept saying no. And uh, I guess it reminds me of dating Marie. (laughs) (laughs) So she finally succumbed, but Nehemiah didn't. He kept up his uh, resistance. He he knew it was a trap. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, um, after after sending, receiving four negative responses, I think they figured out this wasn't going to work. So they come up with a different ploy, a different scheme, and we'll see that in verses five through seven. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. And you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. So the servant comes from Sanballat a fifth time, and this time it's an open letter. Typically when they sent private letters, they would wrap them with a string, they put a little dab of clay and then put a seal on it. You couldn't open the letter without breaking the seal, so that was... It was a private letter. Um, so and what's I think, the significance of this? What's that? What's the significance of being an open letter? What's that? What are they saying? This one's it's almost like a public announcement. That's how it's more if they were just... Yeah, it, it's it was... Not, it's not a secret one. It's, in other words... It's, it's not a personal private letter. No. This is an open letter. Anybody can read it. They could read it aloud. They could post it on the bulletin board. Whatever they wanted to do. You know, we... Sometimes we get letters from missionaries that say, please do not post this. <laughs> you know, those are, that's more of a private type letter. They're trying to protect someone. Um, others, stick this on the bulletin board so everybody can see it. So this is an open letter. It was actually more like a public proclamation. And the main message in this letter was, Nehemiah was going to have himself proclaimed king and he and the Jews were going to rebel against Artaxerxes. And that is why they were rebuilding the wall. And this is basically the same charge that we had, that was effective maybe about 10 years earlier during the time of Ezra. And it got the wall construction stopped. So let's, let's go back to chapter 4 again. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, and someone would like to read verses 11 through 13. Also, our enemy said, before they, know it, before they know it, they'll see us, we'll be right up there among them, and we'll kill them and put them into their work. Okay. And then the Jews who lived near them came up and told us ten times over, whatever, wherever they found you turn, they will attack us. That's I'm wrong there. It's Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. You read, you read what I told you to read, but I was wrong. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking. 
Ezra chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Sorry about that. This is just 11 through 13. Yes, I think. To King Artaxerxes, for your servants in transit, your Euphrates. The king should should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls, repairing its foundations, repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Okay. Um, When you go back through the, read the history, why did most subordinate kings rebel against the kings that had control over them? Money. Taxes, yeah. Paying tribute. They they get tired of paying money to to the emperor, so they rebel, and usually they get wiped out for doing that. Um, yes. So, and Jerusalem had a history of doing that. That's the point they were making here. So this, they're, what they're saying in the book of Nehemiah is, we're going to do exactly what we did 10 years earlier. And what was the result 10 years earlier after they sent this letter to Artaxerxes? They had to stop. Artaxerxes says, you make sure this, and use force to stop it. Do whatever you can to stop um, this construction of the walls. And so it worked at that time. And, and we also think that they not only stopped the construction, but they tore down whatever had been built. And that was part of the report to Nehemiah that we saw back in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. So this has an accusation and uh, a threat that goes along with it, a veiled threat. So you so that's the accusation. And what proof did Sanballat offer that this was true? It kind of boils down to, well, everyone says so. Rumors. Yeah, everyone says this. It must be true. Um, he says it's, it's reported among the nations. Well, they all know. I, you know, there may be some... Uh, speculation going on with, with some of the neighboring countries that that might be what's happening and so their speculation may turn into rumor and, and be repeated um, and in my version it says it, um, I'm lost again here let me get back to this it says Gashmo says Verse 6, Gashmu says that, too. You're planning to rebel. I was wondering, who on earth is Gashmu? Why is Geshem? Geshem, yes. Most, I, I started looking at other, a lot of other uh, translations, and it says Geshem. So it's Geshem the Arab. Um, I've got access to about six commentaries, and only one of them even mentioned this. Uh, it says, Gashmu is the correct spelling of this proper name. That's all it said. Um, <laughs> I thought, what proper name? <laughs> it didn't say that it was uh, Geshem. I, I looked at the Bible encyclopedia, and it just says it's a form of the name Geshem. So most translations change it to Geshem. It's actually in the Hebrew, is Gashmu. But that leaves everybody wondering. It's, a, it's one of these l- places where a literal translation is more confusing than 
and changing it a little bit. Who is Geshem? So it's Geshem. Well, Geshem says the same thing. Sandal is, you know, he, he says, you're, you're going to revolt. Geshem agrees with me. Must be true, right? Mm-hmm. Well, these guys are co-conspirators. Um, you know, you need an independent source of condemnation. So they're all saying the same thing. And that reminded me of the, a very famous quote. It's attributed back to Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels. This was Hitler's Ministry of Propaganda, World War II. And he said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes accepted as truth. So there's nothing new under the sun. That's what they're doing. This is a blatant lie that they're saying. Everybody's saying this. We're spreading it around. Um, so he's slandering Nehemiah. Uh, yeah, it worked once. We'll, we'll see if we can do it again. So he, then Sanballat reinforces this accusation by saying that Nehemiah has prophets proclaiming him to be king. Now, this is often how kings ended up basically seizing the throne. When David got old and was looking at a successor, it got really messy. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we will see this getting a group of people together. To proclaim him king. Second Samuel 15. I need to read it first. Make sure I got the right verse. It makes me nervous now. Okay, yes. Second Samuel 15 verse 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Yeah. So this is Absalom, David's son, who wanted to seize power. So he had people go out to proclaim Absalom as king. Um, and that rebellion was put down, and Absalom died. And then let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1. Someone like to read verse 25 for us. For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live King Adonijah. Okay, so this is Adonijah. He goes off, invites a whole bunch of people in, and they all start shouting, Long live King Adonijah. So this was another one of David's sons who wanted the power of the throne. Um, And they got it by proclaiming him to be king. And that was his doing. Um, Staying in 1 Kings chapter 1, would someone like to read verse 34? Let Zadok the priest... And Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Okay, so this was 
Under David's authority, he commanded this. But again, get a bunch of people together and just make this public proclamation that Solomon is king. So this is what they were claiming that Nehemiah was doing, that he had arranged to have prophets go throughout the land and proclaim Nehemiah is king. Um, as you see, we haven't had any record of that in the book. <laughs> um, so this is supposedly a rumor. Um, where might that have come from? So the commentary, one of the commentaries made the suggestion that it might have been from Malachi. Because Malachi was a prophet who was active at this time. So let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. And I was looking through the, his writings to see, well, what might qualify as a proclamation that could be taken as being that Nehemiah was wanting to be king? And this is the closest thing I could find, and it's, it's obviously not proclaiming Nehemiah king. Malachi 3, would someone like to read verses 1 and 2? I was sent a messenger who prepared the way before me. Then suddenly, Lord, you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when, when he appears? For he would like a, re, a refiner fire, refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Okay, so here Malachi is saying there will be a messenger, who is John the Baptist, proclaiming that the Messiah who you are expecting is coming. So that's the meaning of this message. And that's the closest thing I could find in Malachi to saying that somebody is going to be your king. It doesn't mention Nehemiah at all. So um, there's really no basis in this, but it adds to the accusations. And again, if you say it often enough, people start to believe it. Um, so these are the accusations in an open letter, so it's public, public accusations. And then Sanballat makes the threat. <clears throat> he says, now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. He says, we're going to tell King Artaxerxes what is going on according to these reports. Okay? Um, and what would King Artaxerxes do? What are they hoping that he would do? They're hoping they'll stop. Stop the construction. And what would he do to Nehemiah if Nehemiah is planning on rebelling? <laughs> Probably off with his head, yeah. Um, so that's the threat. He says, we're not going to attack you, Nehemiah, but we're going to let King Artaxerxes know, and he's going to come, destroy the city, and cut your head off, execute you. So unless you come and meet with us. Now, if you come and meet with us, uh, maybe we won't send this message to Artaxerxes, and you'll be okay. So... That's his. You, you don't like something, you'll send a letter anyway, so. <laughs> right. So we have Nehemiah's reply in verse 8. Then I sent a message to him saying, 
Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Just a flat-out denial. And short, honest, to the point. None of the accusations are true. You're just making them all up. And again, this attack had worked ten years earlier, but not this time. And what's the main difference? Nehemiah is there. They didn't have Nehemiah ten years earlier, but this time they've got Nehemiah. He has an ironclad reputation with, the, with King Artaxerxes and with most of the people in Judah. Um, you know, if they hear this slander, they would recognize it as lies. They said, Nehemiah would never do this because they know him. He has a good reputation. Um, that's something we've been studying about elders. That's part of being an app. Uh, oh, an elder is supposed to have a good reputation. So let's turn. Let's go to First Timothy chapter three, and someone like to read verse seven. First Timothy three seven. This is a qualification for an elder. Okay, so this is part of the qualification for an elder and also for deacons, um, having a good, um, good reputation outside. Also, let's look at Titus chapter 2. So I'd like to read verses 7 and 8 for us here. Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Okay. So keep your... He's telling Titus, who's one of his representatives, keep your behavior, your motivation, everything good and above board, and re- uh, your reputation good, your enemies will be put to shame. And so that's what we see happening in Nehemiah. He had an outstanding reputation. Um, he had been Artaxerxes' cupbearer. I mean, who, he's the one who protected Artaxerxes from poison. So he had his trust. And that's why he was sent there with the authority to rebuild the city, which, you know, Artaxerxes, you know, 10 years earlier stopped construction because he couldn't trust anybody there. But now Nehemiah was there and he trusted him. Would these bad guys realize they'd have a hard time overcoming his reputation of the king? <laughs> yeah, ultimately, I think they, they, re- they recognize that eventually. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's finish this section, uh, reading verse 9. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking, they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So Nehemiah recognizes his enemy's strategy. Um, you know, we call that psychological operations today. 
Um, again, nothing new under the sun. Try to discourage uh, the enemy. Try to encourage one's own side. And Nehemiah prays to God for strength. He had a tough job, and the enemy was only making it worse. So he um, you know, went, went to God to um, ask for strength and encouragement for himself as well as he did as a leader. So we covered two ta- attacks against Nehemiah. This is not the last one. I'll try again, starting in verse 10, but uh, we'll have to wait till next time to look at it. It's a little more subtle. To be continued. To be continued, yeah. So, Joe, you want to close in prayer for us? Sure. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the way of the living word that speaks to us. We thank you for the examples of the saints. And Lord, I just want to thank you that um, we know that you are an unchanging God, and the God that yesterday, the name of God of tomorrow, and you take care of your people the same as you did yesterday, you do today, and as well tomorrow. Thank you for that. Thank you for this hour. Thank you for the message that um, Daryl brought. Pray for Robert's message that brings us next to the worship hour. Pray for that. Pray we'll be there with worship attitude, ready to have what you have for us. In your precious good Amen. Okay. Somewhere in history, 